there has been an awakening. Have you felt it? The over. And the thinking it. Welcome to Overthinking It, where we subject the popular culture to a level of scrutiny it probably doesn't deserve. Yes, indeed, there has been an awakening. Uh, I am awake. (laughs) Unusual for a Sunday night at this hour. I'm Matt Rather from Los Angeles. I am your host, and uh, we are here to talk about all uh, all manner of pop culture phenomenon, but starting with the the Star Wars Episode 7 trailer. It's been released. It's it's amazing how quick those uh, uh, all the haters had their knives sharpened and they they went to town uh it's almost like they had a they had a knife with two little knives sticking out of the side of it (laughs) in order to uh to carve up the star wars trailer i'm amazed at how quickly all the commentaries went up uh but we'll talk about why we didn't do one um with our with our panel tonight which includes pete fenzel hi pete Hello, Matt. I have awakened as well. The dark, the light, and the Fenzel are with you today. <laughs> Excellent. And uh, Mark Lee. Hey, Mark. I can't wait for the next uh, X-Wing sequel that's going to be Episode 7 based so I can uh, play that instead of uh, my old-ass video game that I got right now. And oh. it's, uh, it's a red-letter day because Jordan Stokes is with us. Hi, Jordan. It's always great to have you. Great to be here. Sorry about that. I had a, had a technical snafu. <laughs> it's a it's a rogue squadron day, you mean, as opposed to a red letter day. Uh-huh. Yep. Uh, all right. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Whatever. Whatever. Uh-huh. Keep your Star Wars puns where I can see them. We're going to proceed. <laughs> <laughs> so. Um... So, you know, uh, there, there has been uh, a great deal of uh, commentary, a great deal of digital ink spilled already, and we'll talk about it in just a moment, um, about, about this trailer. Uh, but uh, let's, let's focus on one aspect of the trailer. There, uh, the lightsaber, the T-shaped, the T-junction lightsaber. I don't, even know what to, I don't even know what to call it or whether there is a you know, name in classical sword design that corresponds to the, to the long... To the you know to the to the uh, let's call it the cremaster style um, you know the long uh, uh, the long central axis and then the two side axes you know that uh, the two side lightsaber blades that poke out either side uh, there's been a lot a lot of digital ink spilled about this uh, people offering alternatives we'll link up some of these uh, things in the show notes so uh, I'm going to give everyone on the panel uh, as your question the opportunity to redesign the lightsaber to make it uh to make it better more lightsabery cooler for the new movie first in the alphabet drink because it's peter fenzel hey thanks very much so just to provide a little bit more background on kind of the shenanigans on the internet the i believe the extended universe term for this lightsaber is the cross guard lightsaber uh, it's, uh, it's drawn from some of the comic book stuff some of the uh, the novel stuff perhaps and uh one of the, i think one of the notable canonical features of the cross lightsaber is that the part the sides of the lightsaber extended a 45 degree angle uh so 
so as to catch or deflect incoming lightsaber strokes. Uh, the, one of the main complaints about the uh, cross-guard lightsaber that you see in the trailer is that there's an area of non-lightsaberness in the middle that conceivably, if you were to strike either the blade or the guard, your sword would slide toward the handle, chop through it, and... Uh, and chop off the hand of the person holding the lightsaber. Now, of course, we know that chopping off hands is one of the main reasons that lightsabers even exist in the first place. So I, I think that it's maybe not necessarily against the principle of the lightsaber to have a lightsaber specifically designed so that you get your hand chopped off when you use it. Um, now, I'm not necessarily going to address the different ways that the lightsaber could be made a more practical weapon. Uh, from a sword standpoint, of course, uh, having, the, having the beams fused in some way, having them angled differently, just from a fencing standpoint, there's a lot to improve. But one thing that I will say that I wish that lightsabers had is I wish that they had a mode you could turn on where they would uh, and since it's a fantasy weapon I get to say whatever I want, where they would become non-lethal, right? And in particular where they would become material uh, right, where they where you you could use them as a pole or as a stick, or you could hit someone with it and whack them, right? And, and for some reason, due to the suspended the geoelectromagnetic uh, hadron pulses, they go whatever it is. I know I, I I read the books, I read all the books back in the day, but it's not fresh. Um, that that you could have like somebody you could like it doesn't make sense for Luke to be practicing with the remote with the shield blaster shield down with a lightsaber that if it even nicks him would kill him. Right, so like lightsabers should have like a practice mode, right? And they should have, or they should have like a mode which is where they can be used as a tool, uh, rather than necessarily used as a lethal weapon all the time, um, right? And I, and I feel like yes, there's probably some element of this somewhere in the in the extended universe. There's there's ways that this is done, but I feel like it would be a cool thing in the movie if that was something like if you could pole vault on a lightsaber or something like that, right? Or if you could like catch if you could catch something with it, like catch a robot by turning your lightsaber to stun or something like that. I think it would be funky and cool. I really like the idea of someone trying to pull vault with a non-modified lightsaber. So they run and they run and they put the lightsaber into like the little pit and it penetrates directly in and they face plant. Yeah. <laughs> Especially if the lightsaber is like eight feet long, right? And they extend it and they jump and it just goes like... <laughs> right into the ground. And then a water main goes off and they have to brush the dirt off of their, off of their uh, shirt and the blood off of their nose for their, uh, their Sergei Bubka uh, Jedi skills have been put to the test. Is there any the like, coach is like the, yeah. the coach is like, I swear to God, Katarn, I'm going to cut you from this team next time. <laughs> is there any like ten, uh, tensile? And I guess tensile isn't the word. I mean, uh, do they bend at all? Do lightsaber ba- blades, you know, bend? Or are they uh, completely rigid? I think only in space balls do they bend. Uh, <laughs> they bend. They bend around one another. Yeah, they become intertwined, as it were. Um, excellent. Uh, Mark yeah, Lee, your, Schwartz, your Schwartz can get twisted. Well, that's, but, uh, that's <laughs> a whole different podcast. Let's not even get into that. Mark Lee, you were next in the alphabet. Uh, yeah, I was thinking invisible lightsaber for some reason. I'm not quite sure why. I get that might also be antithetical to the idea of uh, it being a light saber, you know, in enough light. Because if it's invisible, it is, uh, it is not reflecting or transmitting any light, but um, I think that could be an interesting tactical advantage over your opponent, right? If you, assuming that you have enough command over the force and of the lightsaber itself so that you can operate it without actually seeing where the blade is, um, you know, you could, uh, you know, the, the stormtrooper who's shooting at you isn't going to realize that you have the lightsaber um, that you're using to deflect laser bolts back at uh, the stormtrooper. If you're dueling someone, they don't know uh, where exactly to block. I think there's a lot of potential in this, but if that's not uh, feasible, 
because of the said light nature of lightsabers, I'm going to have to go with um, a Bluetooth audio speaker because I think that makes every piece of electronics better. Yeah, you can also pipe in. You can, you can also pipe in your own soundtrack to your uh, to your lightsaber duel, right? Right, absolutely. And if you want to, if you want to use your phone to program in different colors into your lightsaber and things like that, yeah, you need Bluetooth. Oh, okay. I got you need it. No, like, no, no, I got it. No, no, no. Step tracker and the Bluetooth and the Bluetooth audio. <laughs> <laughs> it would be very easy to cheat on your step tracker if you were a Jedi. There'd be a variety of things. But here's an idea, Mark. Why it should be trivially easy to make a lightsaber that's not visible, not in the visible spectrum, right? Like an ultraviolet lightsaber, so that if you wear night vision goggles, you can see it, but nobody else can. Or if you're like an alien that has that sees a different spectrum than humans, uh, then you could have an ultraviolet lightsaber or an infrared lightsaber, uh, right? Conceivably, I mean, obviously the technology is fictional, but uh, that would be kind of a cool thing, right? Sort of a Jedi splinter cell situation i was thinking that you got the little predator jedi predator jedi predator die yeah that'd be cool danny glover would have his hands full with that one <laughs> <He's> <laughs> i always go with predator 2 predator 2 is the canonical predator movie guys by the way no go ahead matt sorry jordan stokes is next in the alpha <laughs> well i think that if you're gonna swiss army knife out the lightsaber which is basically what the the cross guard is doing really the swiss army knife attachment that you want is the fish scaler because you understand what I'm talking about here, right? Like, imagine you're out fishing, you know, on a river, and you pull a, a beautiful fresh salmon out of the water, right? And then you apply your lightsaber fish scaler to it, and as the laser takes the scales off, it's going to just lightly sear just just the outermost layer of that fish, and like the, the muscle fibers will still be cold from the crisp mountain stream that you took it out of, and you sprinkle on some rock salt, and ugh, you understand what I'm talking about, guys. <laughs> I'm imagining that you're saying this while holding a lightsaber and then you just drop it. But yeah, it would be great because you could switch it into bear killing mode whenever necessary. If you got snuck up on by another salmon eater. That sounds delicious. Lightsaber as like as as prep cook sous chef. I mean that sounds awesome. A good good knife work is really key to good cooking, is, is my understanding. And when I have some, I'll let you know. Yeah. <laughs> and and uh, finally, mine. I I want them to switch the lightsaber from the old thirty pin connector to the new lightning connector, uh, because you can put it in either way, right? Uh, it doesn't, you know, it doesn't have to be uh, top up. It's a lot better. It uh, it seats in without having those awkward clips on the other on the other side. And when you charge your lightsaber, which is a really big, uh, you know, really big issue, right? Because like the lightsaber doesn't have a battery that lasts through the whole day. At least the lightsaber six and the lightsaber six plus don't have a battery that lasts through the whole day. Um, you know, you want, you want that real ease of just being able to shove the, shove the charging cord right into the port on the bottom and, and leaving it next to the computer for, uh, you know, for half an hour just to get a little more juice into the lightsaber, uh, before you go out to duel or to, you know, fight the dark side. Um, yeah. You guys with the electric lightsabers are so smanchy fancy. Mine's gas power, just like ninety-five percent of the other lightsabers that are out there. <laughs> you guys in your supercharging saber stations next to next to Stanford and Greenwich on the Merritt Parkway, you know, like oh, it's so easy. I can go three hundred and sixty lightsaber Jedi miles in this. Wait, never mind. Uh, but yeah, no, it's I, I can see it in charging. Is, mine still works off of a VGA VG, VGA cable actually, so it gets a little bit. You have to install the sound card. For the the sound blaster is constantly having um, registry errors, so you have to restart the lightsaber. Oh, does your does your lightsaber have dip switches that you have to flip and get in the right settings? 
I think so. But yeah, I think you can run King's Quest though, which is great. It's, it's, a, it's a 386 platform. Uh, it's only, you only have to flip the dip switches if you want it to open your garage door. You know, if you want it to be like, because it's a universal lightsaber. Uh, so that, you know what I mean? It, it does all radio communications with every remote control thing in your, uh, in your house. It's very so wait, in the future, in like the star or in the galaxy far, far away is like, is like Radio Shack, like a church arsenal. Right, where everybody goes for their like lightsaber connections and accessories and stuff. Is there like a, a Jedi Radio Shack? I don't know. Yeah, I mean, like ch- it's funny, Pete. Like those two words, church and arsenal, don't seem to go together to me. But like the, I feel like they're both names of British football teams, but I'm not sure. <laughs> <laughs> Probably not. <laughs> yeah, I mean, where do you uh, right? Where do you go to trick out your lightsaber? That is that is a uh, uh, noticeable lack in the world building of the you know of the George Lucas prequels, for example, right? Like every all, all this technology seems to be very gleamy and and uh, glittery, but it's not like. Um, I don't know. It seems like the the you know biggest feature of twenty uh, first century technology is how how inelegant it is, right? How messy it is. How this rat's nest of cables attends you wherever you go. How in your bag, along with your you know sleek laptop computer that's that's been engineered to within uh, incredibly narrow tolerances, you have to have a. Uh, all kinds of uh, chargers and, and things and different adapter cables. I carry one for my Fitbit, one for the phone, one for uh, the monitor that I plug it into. I carry a monitor cable with me. Like it's it's really ugly uh, in there. You know, you just you just scratch the scratch the surface. What I'm saying is, have you ever seen under the hood of a pod racer? <laughs> it's not a you know, it's not a pretty sight in there. It's I mean, not- I've I've got a lightsaber, but like I really am tempted by the dark side because i really hope darth to the the darth zibit comes by and like pimps my lightsaber out right it's like we're gonna pimp (laughs) we are we found that you like cutting off hands so we put a hand cutter offer on your hand cutter offers you can cut off hands while you cut off hands I think that's where the... the Has anyone made, like, a a steampunk lightsaber? Which, I mean, okay, so that would just be a saber, but what I was thinking is (laughs) to have one that, like, creates a a sort of focused plume of superheated steam. I mean, you can Google image search steampunk lightsaber and find literally hundreds of entries. Done. Yeah. (laughs) Oh, wow. Turn turn safe search on, because a lot of them look like sex toys to me. (laughs) There are corsets involved, and I don't know why. <laughs> why are there corsets involved in steampunk lightsaber pictures? Oh man! But yeah, actually, ste- like in steampunk, the lightsaber seems like a more reasonable sort of weapon. I'm really surprised that nobody said make a lightsaber that shoots like a gun, <laughs> so that you don't have to get close to them to kill them. But I guess we're from the more civilized age; we use the more elegant weapons. Well, it would be. I mean, the most practical fighting thing probably would be to have a button on it that, like, momentarily tripled the length, you know? <laughs> so that, right, so that it would be lightsaber jousting rather than lightsaber. Uh, <laughs> there's actually, I mean, I think there's a weapon, there's a weapon like that in the, um, do you guys read Saga, the Image Comics book Saga? Um, there, there is a weapon like that, uh, the, like, incredible expanding jousting uh jousting uh lance uh in saga and it's pretty cool yeah 
it's the stock weapon of the, the Monkey King Son Goku in Journey into the West, as well as in Dragon Ball Z, or original Dragon Ball. He has the Nui Bow, which is an expanding staff that can get longer and longer and poke things and hit them. At one point, it becomes a means of access to a high apartment complex. <laughs> but turn on Google Safe Search because a yeah. lot of people <laughs> You want to have Google Safe Search on for this entire podcast. People because if you, if you Google expanding shaft on, uh, Google, <laughs> uh, on Google image search, you are not going to be happy with what you find. I promise you. Done. <laughs> Hey, guys, let's talk about this trailer, huh? Aside from nitpicking the uh, details of lightsaber construction and features it ought to have. Yeah, yeah I think it's great. It's, go, it's, go, go it's, well, I mean, is it, I, I feel like this is actually the sort of thing that overthinking it was not built for, right? Like, let me, let me make a counter. Let me, let me just poop all over your point, Mark, is, is what I'm going to do now. Um, it seems to me uh, like the proper use of, of the overthinking it podcast is to really uh, dissect in minute detail the trailer to Fast and Furious 7, right? Uh, rather than Star Wars 7. You know, um, because uh, uh, because there's so much uh, that has already been said in this short time about the the Star Wars uh, about the Star Wars trailer. Like, what what could yeah, we yeah, what could I, we I possibly add? You know, you, I, I hear you on that. So let me just back up and, and remind us of what it is precisely about talking about the Fast and Furious Seven trailer that is us, rather than talking about the Star Wars Seven trailer. It, it is this idea of shining a light into a dark recess of sorts that does not. Um, Whoa, whoa, whoa. Turn on safe search, buddy. <laughs> I, you went there, Matt. I did not go there. Um, it, it's, right, it's, it's, uh, it's a little bit of a money ball kind of thing going on, right? In that um, we're sort of finding hidden value um, that is not recognized by the rest of the marketplace. Sure. In, uh, in something like Fast and Furious 7, where Star Wars is just like everybody is looking at it. Everybody's paying attention to it. Everybody's hacking at the bits. Um, I, I, will, I do want to put in this one piece, though, because uh, we often talk about fandom and our relationship with fandom uh both past and present right and um i think we've all uh you know had our say of, of uh on this podcast about our relationships with star wars right about how we loved it when we were kids and we were disillusioned by the prequels and all this kind of stuff um but i i, I do want to say that after watching the trailer right i think i tweeted this out my eyes were bugged out i had this huge grin on my face the chills went down my spine when i heard um, the Star Wars fanfare with the yeah, Falcon flying around, right? Like, I, I want to put that out there just so that um, our listeners uh, know that we are not stone cold hearted, um, unfeeling automatons, and and, and uh, like somehow like that far removed from the plane of, of pop culture existence. No, we are right there along with you, thrilling, uh, enjoying, and, and enjoying this this trailer. So. I, I, that, I just wanted to say my piece. We are that. not just we are not just terminators with a, a cold metal heart, you know. I know now I know now why you cry at the Star Wars trailer, but it is something I can never do. <laughs> no, and it is something we we do. We Again, do, yes. right? Why, why talk about the Star Wars trailer when you can talk about talking about the Star Wars? Right? <laughs> That's what people expect for us is to go that extra mile. Uh, <laughs> but so okay, I mean let's let's talk about it though. Let's address it, right? So. Coolest, cool moments from the Star Wars trailer. Uh, I think the coolest thing for me 
is the tone of the mo- of a you know I guess model design, which in this case means computer models. The model design of the droids, the X wings, uh, they seem to have captured some of the feel and tone of the original series in a way that the prequels roundly rejected. Uh, in particular, I love the tension in the X-Wing flight, right? You have the X-Wing hovering just a little bit above the water, racing at great speed, and it has a heaviness, a griminess. You know, it has a tactile uh, capability, which I think is something that's a product of the contemporary capabilities of CGI texture mapping, which are much better than they were even during Revenge of the Sith. And we, we have just a much better looking ship, and, and it just there's we're at the point now where it's beyond can we make this thing? Is it possible? Now it's like how do we make it look as cool and as good as possible? And, and I think that there's like real poetry in there, right? Like it's it's sort of size and heft and heaviness in the frame, even a little bit over to the left, and uh, uh, you know as it sort of like is just that little bit above the water and yet racing along at great speed. It's just a cool, cool poetical kind of moment. Yeah, and, and sort of like juddering a little in the air, right? Uh, which gives it, I think, a lot of that tactile feel. And it looks kind of dirty, right? I think it's yeah. funny you said, like, it looks better and I sort of mentally filled in because it looks worse. Mm. Yeah, and along those lines, the one scene from the trailer that sticks out the most to me after having seen it several times is the one with the, I guess it's the stormtroopers um, in the dropship. About to make their uh, about to make their jump or, or di- disembark from the ship because what's going on there right it's uh, it's dark the lights are flickering off and on the camera is shaking right and it, it, it is along the lines that because it looks worse um, it looks better but it is definitely of uh, of the school of filmmaking that is post Lucas right like this sort of what that sort of uh, that sort of shot wasn't really quite in his arsenal. Um, I guess either for the uh, original uh, trilogy or the prequel trilogy, um, but it is just a ve- something that's very different, something I'm not used to seeing in Star Wars, and yeah. uh, that stuck with me. I would even say it's post Michael Bay, just the sort of like the flashing lights and the sort of close up of only a part of the model that you're seeing, right? And like the this the, there is a definitely a. Um, <clears throat> the way that the icon is presented to me feels like uh, not like not like Michael Bay, but like post Michael Bay. Like this is a world in which trans- the Transformers movies have happened. This is a world in which Armageddon has happened, and we've seen the sort of romantic heights that you can take, kind of uh, flying around in a spaceship or whatnot. It's uh, more even a, a Bruckheimer, like a post Bruckheimer world too. Uh, there's just or, a lot of influences in here. Post post like Born movies, maybe. I don't mm. know if it has quite the sense of like. Power uh, that either Bay or Bruckheimer are always going for, which I mean, to me, whether yeah. whether appropriate or not, right? Like yeah, going for in like, every shot all the time, yeah. and often incoherently because, right. like, when you're doing these little tiny details and trying to convey a sense of grandeur and power, like it, it doesn't read to me. Although maybe I just have old, weak eyes, but like um, in, in the Bourne movies, it's used to create a sense of like chaos and lack of control. Um, which which works quite well, and it would be a, kind of an interesting choice, I think, for for Star Wars, which has always tended to to go more towards like ballet and opera, which are both very controlled art forms, than towards I don't know, like a, a back alley fist fight, which is a relatively uncontrolled one. Yeah. That's what the board movies are tending. <laughs> well, the, the the phrase space opera is frequently used to describe Star Wars and entertainments like it, right? I don't know what its origin is, um, but I, I would readily offer up Star Wars as the prime example of a space opera. It's kind of become the, the codifying one, right? Like, whether, whether the phrase is older or not, I feel like Star Wars has to be your, your go-to model of what that kind of thing is. 
just as a as a rat hole, uh, have you seen the the um, uh, the episode of Every Frame of Painting, which is, by the way, if it's a YouTube channel that you don't subscribe to or don't watch every video uh, that comes out on that channel, you ought to because it's it's truly awesome and a, like an excellent use of the medium. Um, some of the some of the stuff that we try to do with our our music video uh, video musical Talmud, uh, but applied to you know serious film. Um, the uh, what is Bayhem? Um, talks about the the you know the use of the background, the character stationary character against a moving background, the use of four middle and background, um, you know, and and how it's all, how it's all, how it is as we've said, sort of incoherent and and uh, uh, incoherent, right? Like I don't know. Well, not just incoherent, but also compelling to watch. It's a no incoherence that you cannot turn away from. Sure, uh, it's it's compelling to watch, but it's it's deployed with such it's deployed with such uh, a lack of discernment, right? Uh, it's not like every every shot, whether it's like whether it's the rock standing up and saying like I'm going to go get the milk, you know, in pain and gain. I don't know if he says that in pain and gain, but but something equally insipid, or whether it's like actually a consequential moment in the in the film, um, it's going to be shot in the same way, right? Like the camera the camera uh, spitting around a stationary figure as he uh, as he just you know stands and looks off into the distance, or like gets up from a seated position, or 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 something like something like that, right? Like that's that's sort of what I what I associate with with Bayhem, the kind of the sense of sort of grand grand sweep right and there's always a lamp in the foreground to to give you a sense of <laughs> give you a sense of scale uh and also of like parallax motion of different you know different grounds sort of moving uh motion on different grounds uh happening at different different rates um and how powerful and dynamic is the motion of the transformer in the background um you know in a in a field of uh, in a field of snow, the only moving thing is the transformer. Uh, that's for you, <laughs> Wallace Stevens fans. Stevens fans for, out there. But what? The, for a what, little bit of yeah. Oh, what this puts me. You go. All right. I mean, I was just going to quickly before we got too far away from it. Space opera ter- comes from 1941. It was a der- derogatory term. A guy named Wilson Tucker, who was a fan and then became a sci-fi writer, was complaining that radio dramas about spaceships were becoming hackneyed and similar to soap operas and also horse operas, which is a derogatory term for uh, Westerns. So he coined the term space opera. It was then sort of codified in a 1974 anthology by Brian Aldiss called Space Opera of science fiction stories, of like old classic science fiction stories. And so it was, wa- it was well established before Star Wars came along, although Star Wars did you know, provide a new niche Right, a new sort of contextualization for that term that had already been around for 35 years when Star Wars came around. So, so there you go. The thing this puts me in mind of is more the four rules to make Star Wars great again video. Do you remember that uh, when that one came out uh, a little while ago, that, that video where uh, the four rules were um, yep. the setting is the frontier, the future is old, the force is mysterious, and Star Wars isn't cute. Uh, I, I know some Ewoks who would beg to disagree with you, but but the uh, the idea of like a frontier setting in the future being old, um, having to you know having to do with the the sort of elements of of imprecision or of of dirt, you know, uh, being introduced into the. 
um, being introduced into the Star Wars landscape or into the Star Wars visual style in the in the seven uh, the episode seven trailer it strikes me to bear on what we're talking about. Yeah, it's almost like the people making the trailer had read that article and wanted to prove that they had done exactly what the article had asked for. Sure. Yeah. The other thing that stands out in the trailer is that it's all vehicles, pretty much, right? Yeah. Right. I mean, that's what they have done, right? From the land, right from the like, uh, it's a land speeder, right to to uh, to like the the stormtroopers standing in the in the I don't know the C seventeen equivalent, right? There's, and like the, it, there's the guy walking in the woods, right? It's like I'm a guy walking in the woods with the lightsaber. Ah, uh, is he on a scooter? Probably not. It's not a Segway. I don't think so. But yeah, it's mostly vehicles. It's mostly like, we gotta go. We gotta go. It's Star Wars. Get on your X Wing and get there. Um, sorry. You can also imagine it being like, before this trailer was released to the internet, it was screened for the good people at like Hasbro or whatever to be like, no, no, we've got tons of vehicles you guys can sell. Oh, gotcha. Yeah, this movie will break even before it's sold ticket number one, right? Just on the strength of the licensing deals. Although at this point, how much do you des- discount you know, Star Wars merchandise as something that you're going to be continuing to sell regardless of whether the movie w- works out or not? Right? I wonder. I wonder how they account for Star Wars merchandise, uh, the success of Star Wars merchandise across the entire Star Wars platform when they have like many, many different Star Wars properties uh, that are also all selling their own individual merchandise. Like, they're probably still going to sell Clone Wars toys and Lego Star Wars toys and all that other stuff. Oh, so you're, you think that they might be worried about cannibalizing their market share by, like, having people buy these instead of the Lego Star Wars toys for no, their kids this Christmas? I, I don't think they're worried about it strategically. I'm just saying that I wonder when on the actual corporate balance sheet does this movie break even. <laughs> because maybe the merchandise gets directed to, like, a separate heading, which is Star Wars merchandise, which is something that is not seen as, like, offsetting the cost of this movie. Yeah, but I, th- well, I mean, I, Pete, I, there's a simple answer to your question, which is never Right. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> the film, the film never breaks even. Right. Like I, I talked about this before, and we got, I think, a comment in on one of the show notes that that suggested the the kind of industry figure of like two point five times the production budget as the break even point for movies, given the P and A spend or uh, the. Uh, well, though it's mostly advertising and not prints anymore, given given the the marketing costs of putting a, a big big blockbuster out there. Um, and all all the other things that get get charged uh you know against the 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 account for the movie but like isn't there wasn't there some article i think we can probably google for this that where uh was a uh, an actor on on the empire strikes back or return of the jedi or something like that talking about how he never made a cent in in profit participation yeah. from the Star story Wars. is that david prouse the actor oh, who was go. underneath the suit and armor of darth vader has not received any of that profit participation revenue from any of the Star Wars movies because they, quote-unquote, have not made any money. Yeah. Um... That that uh, oh yeah so so from Wikipedia press claims his contract for Return of the Jedi in, included a share of the profits on the film and though it grossed four hundred seventy five million on a thirty two million dollar budget press explained in an interview in two thousand nine he's re- never received residuals for his performance well residuals is a slightly different thing profit participation residuals is not well I guess residuals is a form of profit participation but tends to be negotiated by the union. He seems to be talking about like uh, a, a share of the, you know, a share of the pie. Um, yeah. You, you, movies never, movies never make money. They never, ever make money. 
um, you know, there is some accountant somewhere who will claim that Star Wars, the, the whole franchise, has, has been unprofitable. And they probably never should have done it to begin with. <laughs> it was really, it was a poor investment decision. Luke, Luke Skywalker, you know, right? Like, like, uh, yeah, exactly. Past performance, right? Is no past success is no indication of future lightsabers or something. Yeah. right. right. (laughs) Uh, he's a terrible financial advisor. Well, okay. So, so we have the vehicles, we have the, the, uh, grittiness. Um, there, there've been a number of, of just like shop by shop breakdowns of, of this trailer. I mean, what else do we have to add to the, uh, what value can we add to the, to the giant pile of value that makes up the internet? (laughs) I mean, when you put it that way, I guess, uh, uh, Wait till the movie comes out so we can actually subject it to this level of scrutiny. And well, may or may wait, not till a, wait till a real trailer comes out. This is just a teaser trailer, right? This isn't even the real trailer, right? This is just the, like yes. it's going to happen at some point. I would say, as far as teaser trailers go, um, I, I almost feel like the internet has been pushing it uphill. Like it's a nice trailer and it's good, and I'm totally psyched to see it, and I was happy about it. But when you compare it to other teasers that have like really knocked it out of the park, uh, I mean, what what are what are you, some of your favorite teaser trailers? Well, like the Super Bowl trailer of the White House getting blown up in Independence Day is the one that always sticks with me, right? It's like, oh, it's just one moment, and it's like totally huge, and oh my god, you're totally in on it. Um, and that's also the first one of those that I'm aware of, right? Like in the yeah. culture that, like, you know. Uh, yeah. that the massive destruction of a you know huge government monument right that uh, yeah. now that is now commonplace, but at the time was pretty uh, uh, pretty revolutionary yeah I mean, I even probably like the Super Bowl teaser for twenty four a bit more as a trailer than this trailer in the sense that like we people who love Star Wars are propelling this trailer forward. It has a lot of cool stuff in it, but i don 't know if the trailer itself has so compelling of a tease. Like, oh, the Force is awakening. You know, okay. You know, what's happening? What, what is it that I should be really excited to see in this movie? All the stuff that looks like Star Wars. That's awesome, right? I'm, I'm excited. I'm on board. But you, you see how there's something about the composition of the trailer, the, the meaning of the trailer, the, the narrative force of the trailer that doesn't quite captivate as, as regards a teaser. Uh, I don't feel teased. You know, I don't, I don't feel like uh, – I feel like this was – I mean, I feel like if this had been released as just a video that someone had just made, then it would be totally sweet as well, right? Like this doesn't necessarily feel as connected to me to a movie that is eventually going to come out. It makes – I guess it's what it is that it makes me judge the trailer on its own merits rather than make me excited about the movie that comes after it as much – as to as great a degree as some of the best teasers that I can remember have done, right? Uh, I guess. That's what I was so saying. Let me, let me uh, argue back against that. I see what you're saying, but I feel like there is something that's being teased. Um, because if they had a Star Wars trailer that had one big dramatic event, like the White House blowing up, <laughs> uh, if they had a Star Wars trailer where the Millennium Falcon swooped down and blew up the White House... <laughs> Wait, why I would, would I, the Millennium Falcon blow up the White House, Jordan? Why have all the people in Star Wars with the Millennium Falcon... Anyway, continue, continue. Yeah. I feel like that would not get me excited about this. I feel like what this movie is promising is, uh, above all, breadth. Because in addition to having, you know, motion with all the vehicles, you have lots and lots of different kinds of vehicles and lots and lots of different kinds of planets. And I think that that's something that, like, 
a lot of what you get excited about with Star Wars is that sort of range and scope and all of the different, you know, microclimates that the movie takes place in. Um, so, like, that, that's what I got excited about. I was like, oh, wow, what's going on here? Oh, they're on Tatooine. Oh, this is, this is a, a frost planet that's not Hoth because it's got trees in it. Oh, my goodness. Uh, this guy's an R2-D2 ball with a robot with a ball. It's like a whole different kind of R2-D2. And this is maybe an R2-D3. can't tell you how excited I was about that. Awesome. So, so let me ask this then: um, Do you like this teaser more than the initial teaser poster to Star Wars Episode One, with the kid walking in front of the wall and the Darth Vader shadow behind him? I have no strong memory of that poster. So oh, really? That was Sorry. a yeah. I, I remember that being a huge thing when it when it came out, and it really it was better than anything else that came out regarding that movie, <laughs> right, yeah. including Except including for maybe the, the Duel of the Fates song. But anyway, go ahead. Include, yeah, including the film itself, it was it, yeah. but it was like so because it was such a promise, right? It was like stepping up to the plate and like pointing into the wild blue yonder. You know, it was uh, it just called it shot in such an audacious way that I was pretty uh, I, I was pretty affected by it at the time. Yeah, it had the well, obvious tension of an innocent child cute looking little little kid right uh next to the menacing shadow of darth vader that well, was really say, i think i think that that's part of what plays into my excitement about this because the the prequel trilogy promised depth and really failed to deliver so the fact that the the new ones are promising breadth makes me excited about them again which I, I'm sort of surprised by. I, you know, I, before watching the trailer, I was kind of, eh, they're going to do this. I, I have my doubts. But then seeing all of these different, this, you know, this catalog, this, uh, this panoply of, of different vehicle options really got my blood pumping in a way that I was surprised to find. Yeah, they're not just doing one thing right. They're doing a whole bunch of things right, which means they might do other things right. Which is pretty encouraging, and I'm pretty excited. I think it's going to be good. Yeah, and they and they may not try too hard, right? Like they may not try to lift a rock they can't lift. Right. I mean, that's what they did with the Star Wars reboot, and that went really well. So, I mean, uh, Star Trek reboot. Sorry, the Star Trek reboot, which of course we did criticize, and I think is deserving of certain criticism for being even a bit more Star Warsy than Star Trekky. But you know, that's yeah, the whole yeah. They, well, they this kind was, of yeah, this was the, Star Trek into Star Wars. Well, that's a, that's yeah. the thing I wanted to ask. Uh, are are we in the presence now, or are we at the the in the early days of a gritty reboot of of Star Wars? Right? Is this like uh, I don't know, The Force Rises? I mean, I don't I don't think this is a gritty reboot. Right. I, I mean, is it more? Despite the presence I, of grit uh, on the on the screen. <laughs> well, the original movie was very gritty. Like it had literally lots of sand. Right. Like lots of, actually, it was filmed in the middle of the freaking desert in Tunisia. Right. So like it had some uh, maybe not the middle of the desert, probably the edge of the desert in Tunisia, because the middle of the desert in Tunisia is a stupid place to go to film a movie. But uh, but um, there's so many other places that are desert. But yeah, no, it's um. <laughs> Well, I think because there's a whole other kind of reboot that's out there now, right? And it's like the, oh gosh, I mean, are we are we past? I guess the Dark Knight is is a gritty reboot, but there's also I was also thinking about Twenty Two Jump Street, which, by the way, have any of you guys tried to like watch Twenty One Jump Street or Twenty Two Jump Street on like a streaming service over the course of the last couple of weeks by any chance? 
Uh, no, I've seen it movie before, but not like on streaming. But yeah, it was it was available for sixteen dollars, uh, and not for a penny less. Uh, well, maybe a penny less. Maybe someplace fourteen dollars, someplace fifty dollars, someplace sixteen dollars. They they had the gall not really to offer it for rental prices in most of the services I was looking at it with, including including a hotel, but also a uh, like a hotel movie that costs seventeen dollars. Like you don't want the kid touching that button. Yeah, yeah, yeah. By the way, you can get on on Amazon Prime Video. You can get uh, Twenty Two Jump Street for five bucks or six or uh, five bucks HD or four bucks SD. I will put an affiliate link in the show notes just so that you can buy or you can rent Twenty Two Jump Street if you want to. I'm sorry, Pete, that you've already blown twenty two dollars on it. Oh, I didn't. We got it for Redbox, and now we have it for Redbox Thirty. So that's gone. Oh, but it, it was higher on Amazon Prime last week, I think. Maybe because people they they were like, "This is the thing that people are going to want to watch on Thanksgiving." Um, but but Twenty One Jump Street. I mean, then it, there's like the reboot of the sort of funny reboot, the reboot with cultural cachet, the sort of shiny reboot, the polished reboot. Um, I mean, there's a lot of different kinds of reboots. Is this a gritty reboot? Are we going to have like a gritty Jedi? So let me say, I, I think that when you have a reboot. What's going on there with both the gritty reboot and the comic reboot um, is that people have memories of the initial property, and they think that although they relate to it in a certain way, like it didn't quite intend to do the thing that it did for them. So, like if you if you know Batman's story by heart, it's, it's kind of a dark, gritty story. But you probably grew up watching a lot of Batman stuff where all of those edges were filed off. So the promise of the gritty Batman reboot makes sense because you're like, oh, now they're going to tell the story that I have already sort of crafted in my head and make it the dark story I always knew it was. Same thing with Twenty One Jump Street. That like a lot of people looking back at that, they they liked the show, but at this point they're like, oh, it was so cheesy. They're, they're pretending to be high school students. How funny is that? You know, hey, remember the 80s kind of a relationship to it. So the idea of doing it and making it actually a comedy is very appealing because that's what it has devolved into again in the like in the internal relationship that people have to the product. I feel like this is a little bit weird to think of this as a reboot at all because it's not going to be retelling the same story, right? It's like a a further chapter in the same universe. Um, so I, I don't think that it's it can quite have the same kind of um, doing it over again right uh, feeling, you know? I don't yeah. know, maybe I'm wrong. They, they, they are, no, you're not, you're not wrong. Uh, you are, they, are, um, they, are also, they are discarding a lot of the extended universe canon to do this movie, which is something that people, some people care about. I can, I can almost leave it at that. Like, some people care that most of the Star Wars extended universe is being discarded to make the, the continuity for this movie. So to that degree, it's a reboot, but you're right that it's a sequel. It's a sequel to the movies. Like, the things that it's going to cancel out are not movies. They're, like, books and comic books and stuff like that, and short stories and, um, and merchandise purchases and stuff. Hey, guys, uh, speaking of reboots... Ooh, are we going to talk about my favorite reboot of the week? <laughs> speaking of reboots that have a lot of people in a frenzy. Um, oh, man. oh my god. Speaking oh. speaking of uh gritty reboots of pop culture properties from oh say 30 years ago. <laughs> I don't think I think the lack of I mean grit is certainly not a term that you could use for either the original or the final example despite the presence of a lot of sand. Yeah, I don't know. Have you seen yeah, have you seen the first 15 seconds of the video for oh the yeah. That is uh, hard Hey, uh, so um, Band-Aid and uh, Do They Know It's Christmas, the Bob Geldof, you know, uh, uh, charity 
um, supergroup uh, effort has been rebooted 30 years later uh, to benefit uh, to benefit um, I guess Ebola related causes charities um, NGOs and whatnot in uh, in West Africa uh, we'll put a, a link to it in the in the show notes to Band-Aid 30 do they know do they know it's Christmas um, from Earlier this earlier this month. Um, so, uh, panel, your question, I guess, uh, is is this? Do they, in fact, know it's Christmas or not? <laughs> <laughs> or not? Has thirty I mean, years not been sufficient to convince them? Well, it's funny because I mean, I'm really glad that we're talking about this. I mean, I, I, I confess, I'm kind of dragging everybody along a little bit. I think to talk about this. No, I'm in, no, no. You guys are enthusiastic. You guys are up for it. You're ready to feed the world. Let them know. So the um, the new song never actually says the words. Do they know it's Christmas time? Do they know it's Christmas? Uh, they actually change it to say, "Can they know it's Christmas?" And and this is really the thing that that is uh, that is that is fascinating about this song is the ways in which it's changed to try to make up for the enormous flaws in the 1984 classic song, which is just one of the I think just one of the most perverse things that keeps getting played on the radio with regards to its relationship to culture and history and geography and the failure to understand all these things. I mean, it's galling and yet it's also awesome. And so few things like yeah. that have slipped through the cracks in our in our uber boulderized environment yeah pete can you give the quick history of the song uh, I, i'm coming at this pretty fresh uh I, I maybe learned of the existence of this song maybe a year ago and when i found out of it i was like huh that sounded like a really bad idea and when i found out they're redoing it again i was like huh i can't believe they're trying to recorrect to correct that mistake rather than just let it lie yeah. So, yeah. Okay. Give us, give us the, give us the rundown on it. So it has to do with this Irish dude named Bob Geldof, right? Who is a singer songwriter, and he, and he, he's an activist, and he's associated. He was with, he's in a band, right? Um, he was in the, he was in the movie The Wall, the Pink Floyd movie The Wall. He starred in that. Um, but mostly, the big thing that he initially did is he put together really the first really huge, as far as I know, uh, pop group charity, pop group charity supergroup. Right, like pop band charity supergroup, and it was in response. Those of you who are maybe a little bit too young to remember this or to know this, there was a really, really bad famine in Ethiopia in the mid '80s, from about 18, 1982, 83 to 1985. Lots of starvation. It's related to a lot of the political difficulties. I mean, it's in Ethiopia and in the present day country of Eritrea. There's a civil war. I'm not really ready to go into the details of uh, the politics of Ethiopia in the mid-80s, but Bob Geldof responded to it on an emotional level and through his connections was able to get a star-studded cast together uh, include of, of UK-based uh, musicians. And the UK was huge in music at the time. You had George Michael, Boy George, King George III, all the Georges. No, you had Boy George, you know, George Michael, Bono is in it, Sting is in it, right? Like, um... All sorts of, 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 of big stars from the time. Phil Collins is the drummer, right? And, uh, and it's just this, this soaring, soaring song about how you comfortable people, how dare you? You should give money to Africa because everybody in Africa is starving because there's no water on the entire continent. Nor, uh, nor no, is there any Christmas on the entire continent. Well, well that's the idea is that the, the song, the initial song, and I mean, I, here's the thing. The, really, the thing to remember is that this stuff has raised a tremendous amount of money. Uh, and to do to to help out 
people, and it's been a tremendously successful charity endeavor. Um, and so you want to be careful. I think I want to be careful about bashing it too much in the sense of saying that these people are bad or wrong. Because, like, even if, of course, there are structural problems in Ethiopia and Eritrea that make it difficult to distribute aid dollars, it's debatable how much of what came out of Band Aid and the later Live Aid, which was a live concert, which raised like another like 100 million pounds or whatever crazy number like that, right? Uh, maybe not quite that much, but like crazy amounts of money uh, to try to fight famine in Ethiopia and Eritrea. Like, you know, it's just like, but yet it was just, this song is just so completely oblivious to any sort of, it really shows you how much the internet has changed things. Because the idea that you could write a song about how there's no rain anywhere in Africa, right? The, the, idea, the idea behind the song is that because it doesn't, because suffering is so bad in Africa right now, it is hot and dry. Uh, because it is the desert, all of it. Uh, it is hot and dry, and there is suffering and starvation. Because of these factors, it's not going to snow on Christmas in Africa. This is, of course, ignoring the latitude of Africa, the places in Africa where it does snow due to the altitude, right? And just the general idea that most of Africa isn't Christian. Right. So they don't, the reason they don't know it's Christmas is because a lot of them are Muslims or observe other sorts of religions. And the ones who are Christian know it's Christmas, right? But the idea that because it doesn't snow, because it's so hot, uh, this is why we need to give them money. It's just this like bizarre, cacophonous collage of, of ideas about the dark continent that come together in this great outpouring of affection that, they, that they're trying to do to try to care for people and help people that then in turn gets played on the radio when we're supposed to use it to connect to each other in our own lives. Jordan, were you going to say something? Oh, I was just going to say that, although the original song was not written in a post-internet environment, it was written in a post-Toto environment, so they, they should have known. <laughs> yeah. it's, not, it's not like nobody from rock and roll had ever gone to Africa like, to, to go check it out and come back and be like, guys, I've kissed the rains down in Africa. A, they have an airport. You know, like B, I mean, is, it, is it kissed? I've been singing blessed. Blessed, yeah. Time. I thought it was I bless the rain down in Africa. I've been singing that at karaoke for years and years. So if I'm wrong, I have I have, I'm gonna find some Koreans and really give them a piece of my mind. <laughs> well, there's one right here, Matt. Bring, bring it on. Come at me, bro. Lyrics of the Toto song. <laughs> so to give you a little bit more, uh, to give you a little bit more uh, background, this then there was then a boom in charity pop supergroups in the mid '80s. You had. Uh, Live Aid, and then you had USA for Africa, which is We Are the World, which you've probably heard because it had like Cindy Lauper and Michael Jackson and Bruce Springsteen, a whole bunch they're of not, They're not Prince, scandalously. <laughs> Prince doesn't involve himself in institutional endeavors <laughs> unless it's on his terms and he gets to leave whenever he wants. Dude, that, that actually like is like that is really the issue. There's a great yeah. article. I'm going to link it up in the show notes about Prince and USA for Africa because like it happened the night of an award show where Quincy Jones like everyone was going to be at the award show and Quincy Jones was like okay after the American Music Awards or whatever everyone come over to my place and we're going to be USA for Africa and Prince was like no thank you. Anyway, I'm yeah. going to link up an article in the show notes uh, about that in case you're interested. Pete, is part of what's going on here that the Americans didn't want to be upstaged by the Brits? Essentially, it's like the Brits did, um, do they know it's Christmas? And the Americans were like, well, we need to get a piece of this here and uh, trot out all of our major superstars. Well, this raises an interesting question that's at the heart of this, this whole subject, which is, to what degree is Quincy Jones the Americans? 
right? Like, to what degree is, like, you know, yeah, like, like Quincy Jones put together USA for Africa, uh, right? Like, and Quincy Jones had the power and influence to make it happen, and he did it on Geldof's, Geldof's model, but it was also, I would suspect there's a certain amount of one-upmanship there, but I don't think, like, so this latest song, as surprising as it is, uh, the 30th anniversary, there was another remake of Band-Aid of, do they know it's Christmas back in 2004? The guy from Coldplay was kind of in charge of it. I don't think it was very good. Didn't change a lot of the lyrics, but it was kind of an upgrade, update of the production. But anyway, this latest one happened because the UN called Bob Geldof and was like, the nations of the earth are too slow to commit funds to Ebola relief. Can you record, I'm not joking, can you record a sequel to Do They Know It's Christmas um, for Ebola benefit? Oh right? my gosh. And he was like, yes. And so a lot of the money goes to the UN fund. Uh-huh. I like this idea of the UN Secretary General having a Bob, a Bob Geldof hotline phone yeah. on his desk. He's like looking at it this whole time. He's like, no, 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 I can't call him now. Yeah. So and then, 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 then he's finally like, okay, I'm making the call. So this is what happens. is Ban Ki-moon he picks up his red phone and a white phone rings in Bob Geldof's uh, flat. Bob Geldof picks up the white phone, talks to Ban Ki-moon, puts down the white phone, then picks up the red phone and calls One Direction. Right. And then One Direction... <laughs> And then One Direction shows up and does the uh, the remake, right? Uh, them and Ellie Goulding is in it, and Seal. I mean, this one even has an actual African uh, song, like Grammy winning artist in it. Um, I'm, I'm bringing up the names of. I was bringing up all the names of all the artists on the Band Aid. Uh, the Band Aid. Oh, Angelique Kijo, uh, who is described. Uh, by Time Magazine as Africa's premier diva is in the is in this is in this, uh, which is a huge improvement over the all white guys that they did the first time around. Uh, but yeah, anyway, anyway, I'm talking a lot about this. I, have you guys listened to either? Do you have like strong feelings about the original, or have you listened to the remake, um, or have any feelings about it? Well, well it's, feeling- it's it's hard to get into the remake. It's hard to get past the first fifteen seconds of the. The video in in which either like a severely emaciated and like very sick uh, person infected with Ebola or else a corpse, right, is being yeah. car- carried out of a, of a house by people, presumably in Africa, by people in hazmat moon suits, right? Like it's it's. Uh, that's and then like smash cut to the to the voluptuous curls of Bob Geldof, right? Like it's 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 a jarring uh, it's a jarring juxtaposition uh, to say the least. I mean, An yeah, intentional irony, yeah. Well, um, I mean, I th- I, yeah, go go for it, Mark. Okay, sure. My main reaction after um, you know listening to the original and watching the new one um, was that well, they kept the whole Christmas thing, which a lot of people had. Uh, took issue with in the first place, right? This very Euro, uh, Western culture-centric view uh, of the world, um, which you know has this uh, places a lot of importance on this idea of, of Christmas and and Christianity and all these things. And um, although they tweaked that lyric a little bit, right? Candy knows Christmas time at all. It still is like very leans very heavily on this idea of Christmas and Christmas and Christmas is great. And you were celebrating Christmas, and they should be able to celebrate Christmas. Um, in Africa as well, but they can't because they have this horrible Ebola, so they don't get to like sit underneath the tree and open up their Nintendo Wii. And, and so that was a big surprise to me is that they even went back to this well at all, right? That's what I was referring to. Well, earlier. yeah, it's like to me, like the concept is so fundamentally flawed 
that like uh, it, I mean not, uh, okay the, but let me ask the, the Christmas me, idea it's so fun oh, okay the Christmas like, idea that, that's, yeah, it's yeah. not worth revisiting I'm just like I, I'm, I'm still scratching my head and, okay I'm just so I'm I'm with Pete here right like that like you know if people are raising money for for good causes there are not uh, you know it's it, we probably shouldn't poop on their uh, yeah I don't mean to, dis- to diminish that no no, no of course all. you don't no. of course you don't but uh, and and none of us does but um but I I I really am sympathetic to to what you say about like this is sort of cringe inducing uh from the point of view of of identity politics and from the point of view of of you know uh uh developments in in various kinds of sensitivity to the you know that i would call value valuable developments in different kinds of sensitivity and not write off as a as a kind of like uh uh, you know, political correctness or like uh, terrible impos- imposition on the privilege, right? Like, um, it it does. It's it's a little cringe-inducing this this kind of thing. And and yet, like, I here's what I wonder, right? It it is a laudable sort of thought to you know in the midst of in the midst of plenty remember those who don't have have uh, the who don't enjoy the same plenty that you do and to to try to do something good for them to to within the scope of your power and agency to to uh you know to try to do something generous and like i'm not i'm not one of these people you know i don't know i'm i'm a little bit anti-philanthropy because i think it it it's a, a fig leaf over the, you know, terrible structural injustices that are ingrained in in late capitalism. But but set that Which aside. Which are, by the way, exemplified in the first fifteen seconds of the "Do They Know It's Christmas" video. Yep. <laughs> yep. But but set that but set that aside. Like just bracket just bracket for the moment the 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 idea of like a generous impulse to to either share or to contribute right to to someone who doesn't enjoy the standard of living uh that you do or or a class of people that you imagine don't enjoy the standard of living uh is there a way to do that right like is there any is the cringe-inducing aspects of of the Band-Aid Thirty? Is that is that a necessary component of of this kind of effort, or is there a way to do it that that wouldn't necessarily that wouldn't necessarily kind of make your skin a little creepy crawly? I mean, yeah, it's a tough question. It's a tough question, isn't it? And that's well, I'm not. I'm not even. I don't really even feel like engaging it on this level because I feel like we're writing off a song that's actually kind of beautiful, and and I feel kind of a little bit like we're being fashionable in denying that there's anything charming about this song. Like, yes, it's cringe-inducing. Yes, it's problematic. So is the relationship between people who have have food and re- medicine and resources and people who don't, like all over the world, sure. right? Like, well, isn't quite. Yeah, isn't that what uh, what Matt was saying, right? Yeah, it's not I know. Like that, any charitable effort is going to be sort of like rubbing our noses in that power gradient and wealth gradient, and therefore will cause us to cringe. No, R- yeah, rubbing no. rubbing their rubbing their noses in. Is there a way to do it that doesn't necessarily recapitulate right the very unjust division that it seeks to rectify? Right. I mean, that's that's a good. Boom! Okay. Jock Derrida, FTW, everybody. It's, well, you know. the the other question then is like, okay, <laughs> say that you find a, you find a song that is able to evade all offense and is able to reconcile the structural and and racial and uh, and economic, economic yep. and political, and all the other differences that are between, in this case, the United Kingdom and like the various different countries in West Africa that are experiencing Ebola outbreaks that each are somewhat multicultural. 
control themselves. Several, so several of which are former colonies of England, yes. by the way, right? Yes. Like, so there and you then, go. And then the question is like, well, say you do all those things and then say that that song is less popular and raises less money than Do They Know It's Christmas. Have you succeeded? See, this was the thing I was wondering, right? Is like, yeah. does he even know that it's cringe-inducing? Could they have made a song? <laughs> oh, we should do a charity single for, for like privileged, you know, privileged white, uh, you know, pop, pop superstars or songwriters or music producers. And it's right like... But imagine, imagine that you're Bob Gill off and you've done this work and he might have for all we know right because i do know it's interesting that the un actually had to call him in because i was like trying to google around (laughs) i was trying to google around to find out whether that footage at the beginning is real or staged and i put in live aid and then in scare quotes dead body and found something from a few years back where he was asked about whether they would ever do uh do band-aid again and he said uh over my dead body right so he didn't want to do it he had to he had to get dragged out of retirement and imagine he knows that the Christmas thing is horrible and he like says, all right, well, this time I'm going to do something that's like culturally sensitive and whatnot. And he gets a whole team of like songwriters from Cote d'Ivoire or whatever, and they, they make this really interesting, compelling song. And then they A-B test it against the original one. And do they know it's Christmas makes much more money? And then Bob Geldof has to basically fall on that sword, right? Because how many people are you going to let die so that you can have a non-offensive song if it's the offensive song that makes more money? I mean, it's it's really it's and and I think it also goes down to like who is the who is the market for the song? Who is the song? Well, okay, song so that's to? that's right. Be, that, yeah, that's exactly the question, right? Because like now we're in Immanuel Kant tr- categorical imperative uh, territory, right? Because there are right. two there are two cleavages here, right? Like, and they're they're salient depending on what you're thinking. Like, one is between the what what let's call the first world and the third world, though you know those terms don't really apply anymore. But let's let's just use them. And the other is is uh, between the people who are a means and the people who are an end, right? And and in in order to. Uh, uh, in order to A-B test these songs, you have to treat the kind of the, the mass audience, the mass music audience, as sort of as a means, right, uh, to, to the end of, of raising money for these other people who are, who are an end, right? And it's, it's sort of like, well, it's, you know, it's going to get, get their jolly, they're going to get their jollies, right? This sort of, this hypothetical mass audience get their jollies from a, a song that's very gratifying and tugs at the heartstrings and and you know uh has their favorite popular singers in it and and all these these sorts of things and so it's this it is sort of very cynical uh to to do that so now now we're dealing with a problematic dynamic not not of like uh you know uh economic disparity uh among the the nations of the world we're dealing with a, a problematic dynamic among like culture producers and culture consumers uh within the first world um and you know aspects of like manipulation aspects of manipulation uh, aspects of uh, aspects of manipulation that is to say like what is the what is the correct marketing message to get people to shell out one one twenty nine on iTunes uh, so that we the the cognoscenti right like can raise money for Africa yeah you know? or you know we can we can unpack it and say it's because it's Christmas <laughs> right? like we can use all these hostile Latinate words for it but it's also like people I mean. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I want to use Christmas, which is an <laughs> Anglo-Saxon word. Is it? It's mostly Greek, right? <laughs> um, 
Um, but it's like, I, I mean, this, this also raises the question of like, to what degree can we or ought to we to be detached from the you know the class in itself or whatnot or like the 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 so there's a there's a really high bar for kind of like pluralism in our thinking that's being set by a lot of people so it's where it's like oh no you know we shouldn't play the song that encourages people to give to charity on christmas to stop ebola because there are people who don't celebrate christmas and it's like, well, and, and it's offensive on. to them. Right? Like, <laughs> You're saying that do they even know it's Christmas is failing to clear a high bar for cultural sensitivity? <laughs> no, no. The original one, yeah, I'm, I'm, I mean, let's, okay. So, the, so, <laughs> I'm, like, Fenzel just, has always been soft on Geldof. You know, well, that's. I love Christmas, all right? But here's the thing is that, like, I also openly, this move, this song is, is hugely problematic, but I found that it was mostly problematic due to not necessarily its, its knowledge of Christmas, but its ignorance of Africa, right? That was one of the things about this song that always, like, I always sort of point out, like, waving my hands, right? Um, where it's like, uh, <clears throat> I mean, here's, I, I did make a side-by-side comparison of the lyrics, so you can see the efforts they made to try to fix it, to try to fix it, right? Where they changed the, the line, where the only water flowing is the bitter sting of tears, to where a kiss of love can kill you and there's death in every tear, Right, which is of course talking about this horrible social alienation effect that comes about because Ebola passes through families in West Africa. It's very specific to the situation in Africa. I mean, I know that there were a lot of other rewrites of the song that didn't necessarily make the final cut. What the, the original one is: there won't be snow in Africa this Christmas time. The greatest gift they get this year is life. And now it's bring peace and joy this Christmas to West Africa. A song of hope where there is no hope tonight. Which is, I guess, it's still bad. I mean. I just, I just, I don't think that. Well, it's not that I don't think that the problem with it is that you're giving a message about. It's just so. It just gets so complicated, and I, I definitely have a, a dog in this fight, which is that I do think that there's something beautiful about connecting with people who do like Christmas and do celebrate Christmas and do see it as a reason to do nice things for people, and why that doesn't necessarily have to be something that is bad for somebody else just because it exists in the discourse. But so that's also is, a straw man for this song, which has a lot of other problems, and it's hard to unpack them all at the same time. Go, go ahead, Jordan. This is an interesting thing: the idea that uh, that you like Christmas, right? And, yeah. and you think that Christmas is a good thing. And would you like to share Christmas with others? Would I like to share? You're always welcome at my house, Jordan. Yeah, so I mean, <laughs> this, is, this is a really interesting thing that gets into another side of what, uh, what Rather was talking about earlier, I think, which is that um, Christmas is, for better or worse, a religious holiday, right? I think that actually one thing, this is another sidebar, Christmas in the UK is different from Christmas in the US. And yeah. that's something that we should get like uh, Tim Swan or one of our other UK uh, you know, uh, listeners to, to write in the show notes about the cultural meaning of it there, which I think is more overwhelming even and wraps up a lot of the stuff that we would think of as Thanksgiving um, into into like what Christmas is. It's the time of year that you see your family and eat a lot of food and get kind of stupid drunk, I think. But um, the point that I'm trying to make, though, is that it is a religious thing. And I think that the biggest problem with the original song, and the one that's still there here, is that the biggest tragedy is really that they don't know that it's Christmas, and that mm. this is what we want to try to correct. Is like basically like, well, we could just tell them that it's Christmas, and then they could also be saved, right? It's mm. the um, 
it, it, it's a proselytization song, I feel like. And that, yeah. that, that hasn't gone away. The idea is that what these people need is a little bit of Christmas. And it's perilously close, close to what these people need is a little bit of Jesus. And I think that that, you know, there are some people who would not cringe at that and would own that, and that would be fine. But I feel like, actually, I would be much, much happier with a, like, Christian rock version of the song that says, like, we're going to fund a thousand missionary schools over there so that we can spread the word of God than this one which is saying, like, oh, we're just going to sneak it in the back door with a fat man going down the chimney or whatever. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Yeah, I definitely think that uh, that that the difference in the the civic role of Christmas in the UK versus in the United States is something that's that I think is it's something that I'm sort of vaguely aware of, mostly through Love Actually. You know what I mean? Where it's and also through the because they talk about the Christmas number one, right? How it's sort of like there's the, these sort of like very secular uh, cultural gatherings that are associated with christmas and of course in the u.s it's largely a commercial holiday yeah and i, I mean and, and in the uk it's a, it's a time when you sit down and watch doctor who and downton abbey with your with your friends and family right like right i do think it's saying a little bit much to to, to really say that christmas is still is still owned primarily religiously Although that that also sort of that also gets into the gray area between well where does religion stop and the rest of your life begin right because like religion is a really blanket word for a lot of different concepts that are worked into our lives through our traditions in a variety of different ways you know like you can't just excise the religion from like a family well like, yeah yeah and I, I, and I don't mean to I think that I here's the thing that I was trying to say that I, I totally forgot yeah. to say. Religion is a convenient example of a thing that you can have and think is really nice that other people may not want you to share. Right. Right. So it's it's the religion and the family structures and the social structure. Uh, you could be a total atheist who just loves to drink eggnog at the office party every Christmas and think that that is the awesome thing about Christmas. And the idea that you can then say like, you know what, we need to take that and share it with the world. Like that, there's a, a different kind of cringe there, I think, because it's this sort of unquestioning assumption that what is pleasant for you, the value system that your culture has ought to be the value system that every culture has and it's a tragedy that they don't mm, interesting right okay so so like i'm i after being the guy who who was the the kind of the first and the the loudest to s on uh, you know all to poop all over this this uh this effort right like i i think i have to like i have to be an english major here and write like the the though it is a um it's a maybe a uh an not the greatest vehicle i think we have to to look at this metaphorically right like christmas doesn't necessarily mean christmas here right like in christmas is is a uh is a metonym for like all kinds of uh, uh, you know, charity, right? Like, how can they know there is charity in the world at all? Or how can they know there is, um, you know, generosity in the world, uh, in the world at all? And like, this is because it's a, because Christmas is a brand, right? It's actually not talking about Christmas literally, but it's talking about the various brand associations, um, uh, of Christmas, be they, you know, be they very Jesus-y or be they very eggnoggy or, you know, uh, anywhere along the, along the, the Jesus eggnog spectrum. So l- let me dig into this, the song here a little bit more and pinpoint what exactly this song is, means when it's talking about Christmas time. Um, the, the, because right before the, the crucial line, how can they know it's Christmas time at all is the line, why is to comfort to be feared? 
why is to touch to be scared? Again, uh, making a specific reference to Ebola and how it spread uh, in the family context um, and how, you know, you hug someone um, and you're actually, you know, spreading Ebola that way. And then it says, how can they know it's Christmas time at all? Right. So all that is to say that uh, when they when they can't, when they when people in Africa can't have Christmas time, what they're really lacking is any sort of sense of normalcy and closeness and security. Right. Uh, because of this horrible disease situation that they have going on there. Like, I, I get that. Like, I'll, 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 I will grant that, right? I mean, you still have the other thing we're talking about, sort of the, the, the problematic uh, colonial and, and proselytizing aspects of the Christmas time thing going on. Um, but what this is doing here, right, is making, um, making this uh, foreign specter in Africa, that's not the right word to say, making this very strange situation going on in, in Africa something relatable to, uh, to a Western audience, Right. And it says like, you know, you imagine you not having your Christmas, not being able to embrace and touch uh, your loved ones in a sense of security. Right. That's what's going on over there. Yeah, I think. And uh, also there's the the Bono line. Thank God. Well, tonight, thank God it's them instead of you. Right. Which is just its own hugely problematic part of the song. That sort of dagger in, in like the suburban heart. Right. Whereas tonight we're reaching out and touching you. Um mm. Yeah. You know, it's like we're connecting with you. You know, I think I think in the in the end calculus of all this, I don't necessarily think that the critic I don't think the critics of the song are wrong. I mean, certainly I I start out thinking this song is ridiculous, but I also love the song. And I wonder whether that that this tension between the part of the song that is just like irredeemably insensitive, right? That just seems to just not have reconciled the i not really have successfully reconciled the idea of celebrating Christmas with the idea of other people in a way that is like satisfactory right like uh that it has this huge blind spot but it also there's just this huge outpouring of of positivity and generosity that comes out of it i mean is that is that like an example of the sublime perhaps or something like the sublime (laughs) the beautiful and the terrible right like that there's like that in, in one hand you're being the most boorish that you can possibly be by like mocking people for like being rich while africa doesn't have christianity right like uh you know is is that is that what this is right and then like uh i mean because there's definitely something about the the just the desperation of so much of this song to try to get over the hump of this it's the things that are stacked against it in terms of what it's trying to accomplish turn safe search on I mean, yeah, <laughs> but then when they break into that chorus, like, honestly, I've listened to this song like four or five times a day, and every single time I have broken down crying. Like, I am not kidding you. And it is so weird, and it's not because it's the old song, it's not the quality of the song, it's just that they cared enough to try to remake it, even though it was the stupidest idea. You know, it's just like, like of all this, I've been trying to defend it because I want to be on the side of the people who would sing this song, even though I can't fathom why they would have thought that it was something that they should do. Except Ban Ki-moon gets on that red phone and bob geldof's got to get on his red phone and everybody gets together in one place but it's like maybe that's part of why i, I love this remake so much uh is just that like they dared they dared to make it and these things they tried to resolve them they really tried seals in there you know his parents are from are from west africa you know like he's doing his best right like uh and it's just it's it, they they dared they dared to try and you know that's something that that strikes me in a sentimental place which is of course where Christmas lives also which is also where colonialism and imperialism happen to live but it's also where you know you know a bunch of other stuff lives I'm if, not if, it all out. if you can fill the unforgiving minute with sixty <laughs> seconds worth of single sung. <laughs> Yours is the world and everything that's in it. 
and, that, and <laughs> right. That, that, that isn't that. I actually thought of Kipling a lot. Right. Uh, yes, that's why. This is very Kipling, and like the the, I, the poem, the Kipling poem, I think of the most is the the sack of the gods. I think right, which is about like the the uh, the death and rebirth of the gods at Ragnarok, right? Where it's like what strangers drawn from the ends of the earth, jeweled and plumed were we. I was lord of the Inca race, and she was queen of the sea. Under the stars beyond our stars, where the new forged meteors glow, hotly we stormed Valhalla a million years ago. I mean, that for me describes like Boy George and like George Michael and the young Bob Geldof with his full-on mullet, like, and they have these like ideas that they're so grand that are like inherently colonialistically problematic, right? But have this romance to them, and then it's it's uh yeah, and then it comes it comes uh it comes all the way down to the end, right? Where it says uh. You know, they will come back, come back again, as long as the red earth rolls. He never wasted tree, uh, a leaf or a tree. Do you think he would squander souls? And I guess in this case it means hooks. Uh, and uh, I don't know. There's just, I don't know. Kipling is, is really key, I think, when we're, when we're talking about, like, the sentimental appeal of really problematic ideals and, and people who kind of wreck themselves over trying to right. reconcile and, them. And I mean, something that, something that, you, something that you're, you're sort of gesturing at that I want to underline is that, like, it's not that, like, it's not like there are these problematic ideas and then through craft uh, the sentimental appeal is created, right? Like, the, yeah. the sentimental appeal is bound up uh, in the idea that are that are problematic right like that shiver that shiver you get when the when the the hook of of do they know it's christmas time it all resolves to the tonic right like uh that's not that's not despite your politics you know um the that that shiver is is kind of part and parcel of the the i don't know sort of the contradictions of the the modern and postmodern world I mean, I'm spent, guys. It's, it's not even close to Christmas. This is like the first time that we've talked about Christmas carols this early, but they'll be playing in shops around. You know, Black Friday has come and gone. So, uh, um, Speaking of Black Friday coming and going, have you uh, bought your gifts for your loved ones yet? Uh, if you haven't, uh, or even if you have, you should return them and buy them again uh, because we have the Overthinking It gift guide up on the site. It's on the homepage. You can find it there, and its purpose is twofold. Uh, on the one hand, it allows us to share with you the movies, TV shows, comic books, books, uh, and always, always coffee gear uh, that we have uh, enjoyed over the last year. And uh, also, every link on that gift guide is an affiliate link to Amazon, which means that if you buy what we recommend or literally anything else from Amazon uh, by initiating a browsing session through one of our links, we will get a small kickback. That money goes a long way towards funding the site and offsetting our expenses for the year to come. And if you find Amazon problematic, as a lot of people do for political reasons, well, you can still enjoy the shiver of sentimental appeal that comes from supporting your favorite website uh, around Christmas. I mean, do you know it's Christmas time at all? Do you? Do you really? So uh, go check out the gift guide on Overthinking It, uh, including our first ever limited edition TF t-shirt, uh, including all kinds of coffee brewing gear, because that's become an annual tradition, um, including, uh, including several 
Marvel comic books that you might enjoy. Um, let's uh, let's do uh, that, and we'll also put an affiliate link to Do They Know It's Christmas uh, 2014 into the show notes in case you want to uh, buy that, support uh, various Ebola-related causes in West Africa, and paper over a lot of problematic uh, cultural <laughs> issues <laughs> all in one fell swoop. That would be a huge victory for the Overthinking It podcast, which will return next week. Till then, you can visit us on the web at Overthinking It, where we subject the popular culture to a level of scrutiny it probably, it probably doesn't, doesn't deserve. Something has awakened. It's Bono. Hey! hey. <laughs> <laughs>